right, well, it's great to be together here. visiting with us for the first time. We are going through a series on grace, and it has been, as Darren had said, a life-changing time to think about why we do the things that we do and think about uh, our faith in a new way. And I'm excited about the lesson today. It's called Grace and Repentance. And uh, as we come to a close here in just a few weeks, but grace and repentance go together in an amazing way. As we get started here, I want to start talking, reminding us of just what grace is. Because I think we kind of go quickly into repentance mode. I'm not on? That's not the guys, that's me. Okay, we're going to come on here in a minute. All right, I'm, am I there? Is it better? Okay, good. Okay, well, we're going to talk about, we're going to remind you about grace for a minute because I think it's easy to go into repentance mode and all the things that we need to do, all the things that, all the ways that we're falling short and all the things that God wants us to do. Like Darren said, I think grace is a little different that you actually have to stop and absorb it and think about it and and be in in a spiritual mindset to take it in. Some of the quotes that we've gone over, grace is not about finishing last or first. It's about not counting at all. That basically you can't win Christianity. That you either have grace with God or you or you don't. You know, there's no such thing as deserving to be a Christian. The only one that deserved to go to heaven was Jesus. So that kind of knocks the rest of us out. But to think of that's so different. We live in a society that is opposed to grace on so many ways. And to focus our Christianity more about Jesus than about us. We're so used to everything being about us. It says you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So there's none of us that can boast of how amazing we are. And yet we feel that way sometimes, don't we? When we're real honest. And we're going to get into that here in just a little bit. But to know that our faith is about the giver of the gift, which is Jesus, not about the receiver of the gift, which is us. So our faith should be focused on how amazing Jesus is, that he would want to forgive us, that he would want to present himself as a perfect sacrifice, that he would want to be with us. And he's the only way that any of us have a chance. He put it this way, that he is the spring of living water in a world that is thirsty for grace. Jesus just overflowed love and encouragement and blessing and, 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 and connection. Everywhere he went, people were drawn to him because he was hope to them. One that particularly blew my mind, there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. That even on our greatest day, God doesn't say, well, Chris, you had an amazing day. I give you an A plus and I love you even more. You're the teacher's pet for today. 
But likewise, there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. When we have a bad day, we feel like we're in God's doghouse. And we can't get out of the doghouse for a long time until that's what's called penance. That's what's also called not in the Bible. (laughs) And once we've suffered enough, depending on whatever our crime was, then we're allowed to eke out of the doghouse and be free again. And the whole whole time God's saying, really? (laughs) It's not about us. It's about Jesus. You know, back when I was in college, the big thing that came up was Magic Johnson. Yeah. If he was diagnosed with HIV, nobody really knew a whole lot of, you know, we, we were starting to learn more and more about it. He was one of the first athletes that came out with that. And society was filled with this challenge. On one hand, people were saying he got what he deserved. He slept around with however many women. He cheated on his wife. He disgraced his family. He misused his position to take advantage of women. And on the other hand, there were people that were heartbroken. That their hero had fallen. That his life would be forever changed. I wonder what side you would be on. I know what side I was on at that time. I'd like to say that my heart was full of grace, but it really wasn't. But today, because of God, or because of the grace that he got, he's able to start a new life. He started clinics to help with AIDS research and AIDS treatment of patients. And maybe his legacy will be even greater because of an opportunity for grace that he got because of his missteps you know today in a, in a in a different kind of way there's in the nfl there's a story of grace or, or not with uh i knew josh would like this here josh gordon i'm not a patriots fan by the way even though i was baptized in boston i'm a dolphins fan <laughs> so basically this guy josh gordon was that he he broke the rules of, of substance abuse and then he broke him again i don't know how many times he broke him at least twice. And in December, they kicked him out forever. He's kicked out indefinitely. And Tom Brady said, hey, I want to mentor this guy. I want to have him over my house. I want to spend time with him. He's had a hard life. He needs help. And so the, the, the question is, is there going to be grace or not? Should we give him another chance or no? And people saying, well, Brady's just doing that. He doesn't really want to help him, he just wants his receiver back because that's his best guy. So maybe he doesn't really want to mentor him. Maybe he just wants to win. All that is a question of whether we're based on grace or not. Whether people do things out of love or whether they just do things for themselves. That's a question that not only I have to answer, but you have to answer. Because you're going to choose to live your life by one thing or another, by grace or not. And it might not be this, you might not even care about this situation, but there's going to be other situations that are going to come that are going to be a lot closer to you. You're going to have to decide, am I going to give grace or am I going to withhold it? Am I going to give them another chance? Are they trying to work me over? Are they trying to manipulate me or are they really changing? In a lot of ways, how do you really know? 
But God's heart is to give grace. Grace is not about who we are or how well we perform, but who Jesus is and how perfect he is. Think about him. He extended grace to tax collectors. He extended grace to prostitutes. He extended grace to people who were caught in the act of adultery, to criminals, to people who didn't go to worship services, to people who were locked up, who were turned away and shunned. That was probably the biggest thing that shocked people was the amount of grace that Jesus gave to people who, quote unquote, didn't deserve it. So I pray that as we do this series that we're thinking about, where am I at with that? How, how much grace do I feel from God and how much the overflows? Point number one, now that we've, we're thinking about grace, we're in that mindset. Point number one is grace abuse. Grace abuse. Now that we understand how amazing God is, how he can forgive so many things, anything that we can do, he can forgive. That he loves us no matter what we do. That as humans, we can take it to different extremes. One of them would be what I would call grace abuse, or some may call it cheap grace. But that's what was happening in the, in the church in Rome. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So basically, they understand grace so much that they figured, hey, if, if God can forgive us over and over and over again, then we can just live however we want. And his grace will just take over and we can continue to get forgiven, even though we continue to sin. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? You know, we, we've all seen this scene here uh, recently. Some Christians in the Middle East dying for their faith. Imagine if you were going to be killed for your faith and the night before you're, you're, you're locked in the cell. I mean, what do you think we'd be doing? You'd be praying, you'd be singing, you'd be crying, you'd be begging, you'd be looking forward to heaven probably, you're hoping it's quick. All these things that even Christians along the years, I, I mean, I could never imagine these guys doing, not taking it seriously. But in the third century, it was found that some Christians that were going to be martyred, they were just partying the night before they were killed. They were drinking they were reveling because they just figured, hey, I'm going to die as a martyr. I'm good. I can do whatever I want. You know, in, uh, in the 1500s in England, there was a sect of Christians called the Ranters. And they taught this doctrine of the holiness of sin, which is basically the same. If the more we sin, the more God forgives us, the more glory that he gets. And so they would have sermons where they would literally curse the entire hour in their sermon. I mean, that would be pretty weird. I'd lose my job pretty quick if I ever tried that one. <laughs> like, just keep on driving. <laughs> that they would go out and get drunk and blaspheme in public. Just to show that God's grace was going to was all-encompassing and would, the more I sinned, the more amazing His grace would be. 
That's literally how far people would take it. You know, imagine. I just look for any excuse to show this picture when we got married. (laughs) Amazing memories. You know, but imagine if we were getting on the altar, we're getting married, and I start talking and say, well, you know, I don't know about this. I don't want to have to be perfect. I mean, that means if we get married, that means I have to be perfect, and I can't look around or go after any other women now for the rest of my life. Then I don't feel like that's very fair. You know, there's so many rules that go along with marriage. I mean, I don't think this is a good idea. Uh, By the way, I think it's the church's fault because they made marriage so difficult that you have to be committed to only one person. I mean, what about my friends? I mean, they want to go out and and hang out and, and do different things during the week. You know, really, it's it's in my genes. I mean, all the men in my family, I mean, they, they, they're not faithful to anybody that we're with. I mean, there's divorces everywhere. So I, that's not really true, but I'm just kind of going with it here. <laughs> you know, how about if we just take a break once a month? You know, humor me here. How about once a quarter? I mean, that's only four times a year. You know, I can go on and on with ridiculousness. But why aren't you sold? Nobody was going, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Because it's not just about grace. It's about a relationship. It's personal. You know, Danielle. And you know me. It's a relationship. You know, it's the same way with God, that it's a relationship. It's not a bunch of rules. It's not just about God forgiving us no matter what we do. And sometimes we sound a lot like the pretend me at the altar. I don't want to have to be perfect. I mean, everyone in the church is saying that I I feel pressure to be perfect. You know, this isn't fair. There's so many rules. I mean, the church just comes up with so many rules. I mean, gosh, I can't even have fun with my friends. I mean, how about my family? And I I can't go out with the guys anymore. I can't just go out every once in a while. I mean, we're all, everybody's doing that. It's so restricting. And what about my genes? I mean, I have alcoholics in my family back all the way. And I got people, all these different sins that are, they're all a part of my family. I mean, how am I supposed to get out of that? And you see that it sounds a little more real when you take it away from a relationship. When it's just about the theory and it's all the stuff going on that we can abuse grace and we can just feel like, hey, God's going to look the other way. God's good. No, we're making a commitment to our friend. It's not about rules. It's not about our genetics. It's not about this. It's about, hey, I want to be faithful to God. I want to live for him. I don't want to abuse the grace that he's giving us. And yet so many times either we've done it or we see other people that do it, that there's a lot of reasons why they can't be faithful to God. There's a lot of reasons why they can take a day off here or a day off there. And yet what God, what is God still has amazing grace. But in the end, he can still say, I never knew you at the end. 
And so that's something to take in mind when we're deciding how we're going to live and what we're going to respond to. Let's not abuse the grace that God has given us. Amen. Amen. Point number two. Grace avoidance. Grace avoidance, and we're going to call this, it's going to lead into legalism and extremism. Grace avoidance. So many times God wants to give us grace, but we try to avoid that because we don't want to admit that we need it. Really, the only way you can avoid grace is to not admit that you need it. So we try to put our best foot forward. We try to talk a good game. We're not really open and honest. You know, I came up, I found a few good uh, quotes here. It says, forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered if it is to be complete. So it's not just the fact that God is offering grace, but there's some terms that we have to accept to be able to receive it. Okay, we're going to explain that a little bit more. A person who accepts no guilt can accept no forgiveness. So isn't that the hardest thing to do is to admit when we're wrong? I mean, how many people enjoy that? Just, man, I can't wait to go around and tell everybody how much I messed up and how wrong I am today. That sounds like punishment more than it sounds like a good day. But in God's eyes, we can't be forgiven unless we see our guilt. In John 8, when the woman was caught in adultery, there were two groups of people. One that knew and accepted their guilt, and that was the woman, and those who didn't accept their own guilt, and that was the crowd. And that's why Jesus said, let you who without sin throw the first stone. And so one by one, they're realizing, and imagine them holding those stones going, I don't have guilt. I'm not as bad as this person. Yeah, I guess I do. And they were so angry because Jesus called them out that it wasn't about who can I throw the stone at, but man, they need to throw the stone at me. And yet, in an effort to avoid guilt, we can make up a lot of rules that make us feel better. You know, legalism in the church could be our worst challenge, our biggest challenge. That if we do all these things, then we're good. Even good things. You know, we have our quiet times and we give our contribution and whatever. We, we share our faith with some people. We we love our wives and our kids, and we can kind of check off all these boxes and feel like, you know, if I check off all these boxes, then I'm good. The Jews had a similar way of doing things. They had all these rules to do with the Sabbath so that they wouldn't break it. They had over 300 rules to go with already the rules that God already gave them. But they could ride a donkey, but not with a stick. Because if they had a stick, they would be tempted to hit the donkey to go faster. And that would be a sin because you could ride a donkey, but you couldn't hit a donkey on the Sabbath. Okay? They wouldn't look at a mirror, look in a mirror on the Sabbath because they might be tempted to pull out a gray hair if they saw one. Some of us may be tempted with that more than others. (laughs) That was one of their rules. The third command, not to take the Lord's name in vain. So in order to avoid this command, they would never write or speak the name of God. 
So in our vernacular, instead of saying God, maybe they would say good. Good. Because I couldn't say the name of, of God in vain if I didn't actually say his name. In order to avoid adultery, they wouldn't even look at or talk to another woman other than their wives. Can you imagine that? If you're married, to walk around and try not to look at another woman all day and not talk to anyone, and so they sat on different sides, and, you know, that's why Jesus was criticized talking to the woman at the well. You know, all these different obscure, even obscure commandments. Do not cook a a young goat in its mother's milk. Why that is in there, I don't know. But it is. And so that led to them forming two different kitchens, one for meat and one for dairy, so that we wouldn't break this command that God has given us. Sounds kind of extreme, wouldn't you think? Even in Jesus' time, the religious folks were extreme. Even to the point where they removed Jesus from the cross so that they wouldn't break the Passover. They just killed the Son of God. They're not really worried about that, but they're worried about breaking the Passover and being able to have their feast afterwards. They would walk around with scriptures tied to the ends of their robes and pray in public. And Jesus said that you were like whitewashed tombs. That you look so good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of evil. You know, they followed all the rules except the one about the relationship with God. Jesus coined the phrase. It's actually credited to him, the phrase hypocrite, which is what they called the actors that would entertain crowds in his day. He says, that's how you are. You entertain the crowds, but your heart is far from me. Outside, you look so good, but there's no room for grace because there's no admittance of your sin or guilt. Even Christians can be extreme. Over the centuries, we've been extreme. In the fourth century, there were monks that would live only on bread, water, and salt. Sounds like a great diet there. Bread, water, and salt, just so they wouldn't indulge themselves in in human pleasures. So they would just, quote unquote, you know, suffer for Jesus. And that was their way of being spiritual. There was this guy named Simon Stylites in the 5th century who lived where that rock is. That used to be a pillar in the old days before it got knocked down. But he lived on top of a 10-foot square pillar for 37 years. 50 feet up on top of a pillar for 37 years so he could be closer to God. Literally and spiritually. And I just thought about that. Imagine all the people that had to get him food and water and all the supplies. And So there's this whole little village trying to help this guy to be closer to God. And he was buried as a, as a hero. I'm not sure that he really got the idea of grace. That God wants me to live up on top of this pillar so that I could be holy. And I can be in a relationship with God. I, don't think, I think that was not what Jesus was talking about. 
And yet, even us today, we can follow all the quote-unquote rules of the church. And we do all those things that I mentioned before and feel like, oh, I'm a good Christian. I'm doing all the things that God wants me to do. I'm obedient. I'm compliant. I'm whatever you want to call it. That's not what God wants. That's not how he wants you to live. That's not a great relationship. I, loved, I found this quote. It says, the sense of sin is the measure of a soul's awareness of God. You have to think about it for a minute. The more you're in touch with your sin, the more you're closer to God. You're appreciating your forgiveness. That God, you're appreciating the grace that God gives us. So the more mature we are as Christians, the more in touch we should be for who we are and how much God has forgiven us. For me, this was the most challenging part of the sermon because a lot of the outward things aren't there that I used to do. You know, Lewis reminded me as he was sharing, I mean, I came to church hungover for the very first time. You know, my sin was so loud, it was, it was all over the place. It was going before me, behind me. I was leaving awake. But now, I can feel so different. You know, we went on a, a vacation with our family this week to Oregon for five days. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you go on vacation with your family for five days? It was very interesting. We had a great time. It was very bonding. But we were triggering each other all over the place. I was getting triggered by them. I was triggering them. They reminded me of past sins that happened last time we were at the lake. And three years ago, this is what happened. And I remember that conversation. They looked at me just like they did that one time when they looked at me a while ago. And we were in that ish having that fight. And I was went to bed. Every night and just try to process, okay, what happened today? What was that? I'm just being honest. A sense of sin is the measure of soul's awareness of God. And I started meditating on that. My thoughts and how I would compare me with them, their relationship with God, my relationship with God, their kids and my kids. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they didn't discipline that. I can't believe they accepted this. I can't believe they spend their money that way. I can't believe their values are so upside down. I can't believe that's the legacy that they're going to have. I'm just being real, okay? These are my real thoughts. This is just like five days. (laughs) Critical not grace-filled, not accepting. And I remember, I just thinking, man, I need a lot of forgiveness. And it made me think, like, I'm probably like this all the time. Not just on vacation when I'm with my family, but I'm probably like this all the time. You can just take the word probably out of that. (laughs) Probably just making me feel better. Man, I need forgiveness all the time. Without Christ, my mind goes and goes and goes. With Christ, I can look around. I can see, man, you've been changed. This person's been transformed. This person's overcome. This person has so much potential. God has created them. God died for them. 
Yet without Christ, none of those thoughts come to mind. Talk about avoiding grace. And if I really went to bed every night appreciating the forgiveness that God gave me for all the sins I committed in one day, I should be the most grateful person around. I would be, it would be a lot easier to show grace. In Romans 2, he has the same for the church in Rome. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That because God is so good to us, that's what makes us want to change. Wow, God gave me another chance. He gave me another chance. He put people in my life. He, he still believes in me after all that. That's unfathomable. That's what his grace is meant to do to each one of us. That when we stray, that he pulls us back. In Titus 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That it's God's grace that teaches us to say no. That teaches us to turn away from ungodliness that, that motivates us because we want to be close to him. That's my third point. Grace motivates repentance. Even when Jesus was there, he says, the Lord is near. Now repent. God is close by. God is right here. Now change. Turn to him. He spared you. He provided for you. He loved you. He's going to die for you. And he already has. A few scriptures that I wanted to share. It says opponents, he must, talking about a Christian, they must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That even repentance is more about God than about us. That God's the one that opens your heart. That God's the one that leads you. Even in repentance, we feel like it's about us. God's like, you got it all wrong. You don't have to jam it down somebody's throat. The truth. Anybody like that? I sure don't. Most people I know, the more you push, the more they push back. He said, with love and gentle instruction, God will grant them a knowledge of the truth. He has been searching for them their whole lives. He's been giving them every opportunity to change. And sometimes if we just get ourselves out of the way, it allows people to see God and his love even more. 
Repentance, I I love this definition. What it looks like to go back to God. The prodigal son, once he realized, it says he came to his senses and he realized, wow, my father's pretty good. As a dad, he's good, but even as a boss, he's good. How about if I go back and just be an employee? And he's on the way back and he's rehearsing his speech and his apology and shows back up and God gives him a hug. That was repentance from the time he came to his senses to the time he was reunited with his father. You know, what does that look like for us to really repent and turn back to God? Because we know that life with him has got to be better. That he does love us. That he did die for me. Why would I hold him off? Why would I want to keep him waiting? You know, you think about Zacchaeus. The simple realization that Jesus likes me. Jesus likes me. Of all the people, he chose to go to my house for lunch. Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He was somebody that nobody liked. And yet the fact that Jesus showed up there, showed him his grace, motivated him to sell half of his possessions. You know what? I don't need money to be happy. Let me, let me give it to the poor. I, I've had a good life. You know, I've wronged a lot of people. Let me make it up to them. Let me show them what... Jesus' love means to me. And you imagine him just watching this man change. Watching God's grace take over his life. In Acts, people burn scrolls. In Acts 19, it says, Many who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. They didn't hide it. They didn't try to be perfect. They didn't put on a front. It says a number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. They just, it wasn't a big process of, okay, to repent, I have to do A, B, C, D, and D. I got to check off all these boxes. You know what? God hates these. Let me burn them. God doesn't want me to live that right that way. Let me just not. Let me cut that off. Let me be open about the things that I need to change. Let me get people to pray for me. Let me change and turn back to God. And just out of their hearts, they burn $50,000. That started this whole process of persecution, but it also glorified God. You know, when you understand how much God loves you, You can't live in sin any longer. And I pray that today that you will be motivated to repent. That you'll be motivated to change. I don't know what that will look like for you, but chances are pretty good that you know what that looks like. And I pray that you'll get help and you'll get prayers and you'll get assistance from God mostly. As we take communion, I want to read a scripture that I think brings, brings this whole thing together. 
of not not accepting cheap grace, not running away from grace, not avoiding it, but coming close to God and appreciating in gratitude. In 1 John 1 and verse 5, it said, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate from the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love this passage because it talks about the freedom that comes when we come forward to receive God's grace. When we stop hiding, when we open up to the light, when we let God come in our hearts, when we talk about and share and admit all the ways that we need God's grace in our lives. And there is a fellowship of people who have done that. There's a fellowship of realness and of love. And there's also a forgiveness and a freedom that comes from having an advocate in Christ. So let's pray and and we'll take our communion together. And I pray that God will lead all of us towards him and his grace today. Father, we do thank you for this time. Thank you that we can reflect on you and how amazing you are. God, please forgive us in ways that we have abused your grace that you've given us. That we've set it aside, that we've decided to sin anyways. God, uh, please forgive us. God, I pray that you can help us not to avoid you because we don't want to admit we're wrong. Because we don't want to come into the light because maybe we're not even aware of the depths of how much we need you. God, I pray you open up our hearts. Help us to see you. Help us to see our need for you. God, I pray that you forgive me for just my sinful heart at times and my thoughts and just where they can go. God, I pray that you forgive all of us and help us to come before you with a pure heart. God, thank you for the the ability to, to change, for the ability to restore our walk with you. God, this time that we take our communion is the most valuable time that we could ever have. The body and blood that you shed for us that could forgive our sins each and every week, but not just on Sunday, but all throughout the week. God, I pray that we can appreciate, value, and be in touch with the amazing grace that that is. We love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.